that he is alive and well, and so is Spirit of Grace. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I'm excited about the power of worship that I feel in this house this morning. Amen. When we worship him and lift him up, anything can happen. Praise God. This song says, I give myself away so you can use me. And we see God do the most powerful things when we put ourselves and our agendas and our plans aside. And we allow him to use us in whatever way he sees fit. Amen. It's a powerful thing. Give myself away. I give myself Give my 
worship you. We honor you today, Lord God. I want to share just something with you that I know will bless you. We pray over many prayer calls. And we prayed for one recently. And we watched God do several miraculous things with that prayer call. Um, really special one was Wednesday night about 11 or so. Pastor was conked out. I was conked out. And I heard Owen come upstairs. And he said, someone's outside. And I said, oh, what's wrong? I'm sorry. That should not be at that time of night. And when I know it's somebody from the church, I was like, oh, what's wrong? And he goes, they just said that they have something for us. And so I was in our living room and I listened to the conversation and they said, you gave a prayer cloth and I'm bringing you a prayer washcloth because that's what we had available. But the person who does not come to our church, who is in need, put his hand on a prayer cloth and prayed over it for your pastor. Amen. And we watched God. It was a miracle. It was a miracle because God, in that short time of when you prayed over a prayer cloth and sent it out, did a work. And that person put his hand on the prayer cloth and send it to your pastor. And I know Owen came back in the house in tears. I was in tears and I just remember falling asleep saying, God, you're so good. Look at what you do. Look at what only you can do. Um, things that, that we can't see inside of a person's heart, but God knows. God knows every part of us and every part of another person and sometimes we can feel helpless. How do I help this person? I can't really see what they're dealing with. I can see this need, but God, only you can see the heart. And he's here. I want you to know this morning, if you just need a little bit of hope, and you just need an, a, a, just a little bit of encouragement to reach out and believe again, this song says, I lift my hands to believe again. If you've served him your whole life, but you just feel a, a little beaten down today, you know, and, and just struggling. And I lift my hands to believe again. You're my refuge and my strength. Amen. And we make those declarations about him. And his power comes through. And we feel him just gird us up with strength and hope. Amen. Let's lift our hands to him again today. We worship you, Jesus. We bless your sweet name, Lord. Amen. Be still, there is a healer. His love is deeper than the sea. His mercy is unfailing. His arms are fortress for the
knowing what you're capable of. Not only believing in your power, but knowing what your power can do in a life. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power. I thank you for the words that you're speaking right now. Thank you for the words that are coming from you to our heart right now that are finding their mark in that heart, Lord Jesus. Praise God. You know us, God, like no one else. Even when we don't like it, you know us like no one else. And you lovingly speak to those places that could harm us. Those places that could cause us to stray. You speak to those places, God, because you're a loving Father. And you want to keep us from harm. And you want to keep us from danger. Help us to hear you today, Jesus. God, set directions today. Set directions today for new life. Oh, praise God. Set direction for those plans that your word says that you have for us to prosper us, to give us a future. Praise God. Set our feet upon a path, God. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Need to guide us like only you can. And help us to listen and to hear you. Reveal yourself today in a special way, Jesus. You are marvelous and powerful and beautiful. And amazing. We stand in awe of you, Jesus. We stand in awe of you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Worthy is the
And when I get healed, then I can finish my last two cups. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. Thank you all, though, especially for your prayers over the week and uh, upcoming weeks. I, I do visit the orthopedic doctor tomorrow morning to find out how good the ER doc really did. And uh, so we're, we're very thankful for the blessings of the Lord. It was good that my kids were in distance learning this week because Owen was able to take me up to the hospital and, and uh, things of that nature. So we're very, very grateful. And thank you for all of your prayers and offers of help. And uh, we will let you know if we do need some help. Uh, the worst part of the whole thing is trying to figure out how to do everything left-handed. Never realized how useless my left hand really was until I could do my right. I'm typing like this now, you know. And uh, but uh, I'm glad that you can laugh at me. Deuteronomy, yeah, with me. Huh? Deuteronomy chapter nine. I want to preach a little bit this morning, and uh, as you're turning there, trying to figure out what was appropriate to preach today, and uh, I said it almost jokingly at first, Tony was over at our house last night, sitting, he said he was hiding out from Kim, but he was at our house helping us out with something, and Trish was sitting there, and I was like, I'm not sure exactly what to preach, and this message came to my mind and it just seemed appropriate. And so the title of this is The Three Fingers of God. <laughs> We're going to be preaching on the three fingers of God today. See, even God has a sense of humor. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spoke with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. The Lord wrote with the fingers of God on tablets of stone. And that's what I want to preach for a few minutes today about the three fingers of God. Would you just bow your heads where you're at? Just ask the Lord to speak to us today. Lord, I'm asking you to... Fill me up and pour me out upon your people. Let your word come alive in our hearts and in our spirits. Let revelation come. Lord, I'm praying that hope would come, that joy would come, that peace would come in the next few minutes. I'm praying, Lord, that you would uh, give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, eyes to understand, and allow us to absorb what you have for each one, for you have something different for each person that's in the house today. Allow us, Lord, to absorb what you're trying to speak to us in, in your precious name, I pray, the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. Praise God. It was in 1989, a Philadelphia financial analyst purchased an old piece torn picture of a country scene for $4 at a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania. Because he liked the frame. Didn't like the picture, he liked the frame. And so when he got home later that afternoon and he began to detach the frame from the painting, the frame just fell apart in his hands. And inside of this picture, he found a folded document between the canvas and the wood backing, which appeared to be an old copy 
of the Declaration of Independence. And there was a, a friend of his who collected uh, historical memorabilia. He said, you need to go and get this checked out and see if it's, appraise it and get it checked out and see if it's real. Well, it was real. In fact, it was one of 500 official copies from the first printing of the Declaration in 1776. And there's only 24 similar copies that were known to exist at the time before this find, and uh, there was only three that were privately owned. Everything else was uh, in museums and things of that nature. This rare document then was offered for sale by Sotheby's on June 4, 1991, and the lucky $4 fine fetched even more than had been anticipated. They had anticipated between $800,000 and $1.2 million, but it turned into a $2.42 million by the sound of the gavel. So for $4 to $2.4 million. And then in June 2000, a man by the name of Donald Shear of Atlanta purchased the original copy for $2.42 million. He put it up for sale a second time, and months prior to the auction, the auctioneer confirmed that this printed sheet was not only authentic, but was one of the three finest known documents to exist, as crisp as it was on the evening it was printed by John Dunlap to carry the news of America's independence to the people of the 13 colonies, and this time, the fine that was per the fine that was purchased for $4 at a flea market went for a whopping $8.14 million in an online auction. What a fine. You're all going to flea markets after church, I know that. <laughs> if that handwritten note signed by the 56 founding fathers that declared America's independence from Great Britain was worth $8.14 million. Think about what an original handwritten note from God would be worth. And I think it's interesting to note in scripture, this is just really weird. I'm afraid to move this hand too much. I feel out of place. But I think it's interesting to note that three different times in the course of history and scripture, God took the time to specifically write out his thoughts by hand. And I want to address some of them today. Uh, what he had to say was so important that he couldn't leave it to the prophets and he couldn't leave it to the apostles and he couldn't, he had to write it himself and to get, so that people wouldn't miss the intent of his message. And what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 10 is the first time that God wrote with his own finger uh, a handwritten message to the people. He wrote it on the tables of stone. You can read this encounter with Moses in Exodus chapter 20. And it gives us what we identify as the Ten Commandments, the foundation of the law. And uh, when you talk to theologians, the law is really the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But the foundation of all of that is Acts cha or Exodus chapter 20, where God writes with his own hands on the tables of stone the Ten Commandments, if you will. And uh, the reason that he writes this is because he's having to do some things 
uh, for us so that you and I can understand what's going on in the world. When Adam and Eve were created and placed into the Garden of Eden, they were placed there in a state of innocence. Uh, there was no knowledge of good or evil because evil did not yet exist in the realm of the heart or the mind. And so, but when they fell prey to Satan's um, luring, his temptation, his deception, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they weren't supposed to eat from, that's when the Bible says sin entered into the world and death by sin. It, it's it, all of a sudden man was confronted by the choices of life. And all of a sudden they had to decide what was right and what was wrong. Innocence was destroyed. And so at this point in time, when God begins to write on the tables of stone, he's laying out a document, if you will, that gives us the boundaries, the identification of what sin is. And, and, and he wants the people, his chosen people, to know specifically what he expected. And so he wrote what we have come to know as the law, if you will. So the first aspect that God wrote a personal handwritten note to uh, creation was he wrote the law. It was important because he was giving us a clear-cut distinction so that you and I can recognize when we cross over the boundaries. Don't have any other gods before me. Number one. Don't have any other gods before me. If your family comes before God, you put something in front of God. If your job comes in front of God, you put a God in front of God. You, when, when there, there should be, your number one priority in life should be you and God. That relationship should be number one. All the other relationships will take care of themselves if this one is right. It's when we get this one wrong that all of these end up being wrong. And, and, and that was straight from God. That wasn't me. That was God. He wrote a handwritten message to mankind. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't create any idols. We do that. We don't realize that we do it, but we do it. Whether it be a car, whether it be a house, whether it be uh, a hobby, whether whatever it is, it can become our idol and we do everything around it to get to that. What can I do to make it so I can do this? What can I do so I can have this happen? And, and that becomes our idol. We, we end up working and living and planning around to get that created in our life. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. Now listen, I know that that's partially talking about using his name as a curse word. But it's also talking about taking the power that's in the name lightly. Listen, when you take the name of the Lord in vain, it's in vanity. It's, it's in meaningless conjecture. And, and so what does the name of Jesus stand for? Well, it stands for a whole lot. And when you take the things of God lightly, you are taking the name lightly. Because the Bible says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It says in Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The name of the Lord is a powerful uh, tool. It's a powerful authority. And when we take it lightly, we're breaking this law. 
Don't forget the Sabbath. Don't forget how to rest in God. Don't dishonor or disrespect your father or mother. Don't kill. Well, pastor, I've never killed. You ever gossiped? It's about the same thing. You're killing a reputation. Don't commit adultery. That's not just being unfaithful in marriage with, with another person. That's being unfaithful in marriage with anything else. If your job becomes before your spouse, you are committing adultery. Whenever when anything comes between you, it should be this, and then for me, it's this. It's not even my boys. My first responsibility is me and God. My second responsibility is me and my wife. Then my kids. See, we, we flip that one around real easy because we try to do everything for our kids and we want to be best friends with our kids and, and, and it's not supposed to be that way. And what, what, what it's supposed to be is me and God, me and Trish, me and the boys, then me and you. Does that make sense? Don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. So the first time that God personally wrote a handwritten message, he wrote the Ten Commandments, he wrote the law. He drew a line, if you will, in rock and said that we shouldn't cross over that. He created a clear and distinct boundary and told us if that if we moved outside of them, we will have become sinners or we will have sinned. It is a very high standard that God wrote that day because God is a very holy God. And because of the law that he wrote that day, it has created through history a lot of guilt because none of us have lived up to the standard that God wrote down. And so we always fall short of the mark. Romans Three even tells us that we've all sinned and we've all come short of the glory of God. We have not attained that handwritten note that God gave to Moses for the people. We keep falling short of it because the standard that God wrote was so very high. But can I give you a secret today? You and I were never expected to live up to God's standards. Without his help. You were never designed to be perfect on your own. You were never designed to live up to that handwritten note from God. When he took his finger and wrote it into the tablets of stone. It was not, it was not, you were not designed to be able to accomplish that without his help. He drew that line in the sand or in the rock, if you will, in an effort to bring a definition to sin and to draw us to him for help. He wrote the law so that you and I would understand that in order to please him, we were going to have to get to him. Because we would never be able to please him on our own. Let me put it to you in King James Version in the book of Galatians. It says, for the law was the schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. He wrote the law not to condemn you to 
because he knew that you'd never live up to the standard. He wrote the law in such a high standard so that it would draw you unto Christ because he knew you would never be able to do it on your own. But through the times of history, and even I, I'm sad to say in the confines of a church setting, there has been this use of the law that has been used as a hammer that said you cannot do this, and you cannot do that, and you cannot do this, and this, and this, because it won't be pleasing to God. And, and what has ended up happening is law has become this big boulder that suffocates us. That's not what the law was intended for. The law was intended to say, if you'll just get to Christ, I'll help you to attain what my expectations are. Now, are there things that we can't do? Yeah, there's a whole list of them. But you want to know what? Here, here's the problem. When God wrote the law, the handwritten note, the Ten Commandments, I think he had an understanding of who you and I were and understood how our brains process. He had tried it the other way, and it didn't work with Adam and Eve. And so now he's trying reverse psychology, if you will. Here's what I mean by that. Notice what he told to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, you can have this and this and this. You can have all of this except this one thing. And because of somehow the way the human brain is wired, we forget about all of this and we focus on this. And so because Adam and Eve didn't understand when God said you can have all these blessings, but just stay away from this one tree. Now coming around in Acts, he's having to reverse the psychology and say, okay, you didn't listen to me when I offered you all that except for this. So now I'm going to tell you, stay away from all of that. And then here's me. What he's hoping for and what he's trusting in is the fact is that we go to the one thing that we cannot have on our own. In the Garden of Eden, they couldn't have the one tree. After the law, you're never going to get to God, so it's the one thing that you can't have until you can pursue him. Are you following along? Adam and Eve said, I want the one thing that I can't have. So God is saying, okay, I'm going to make it so I'm the one thing you can't have, and you can't do all of this stuff if you want me. So the law was written to put something in us to draw us to him. The concept of the schoolmaster isn't just, you know, when I think of schoolmaster, I think of the one-room schoolhouse back in the early days when the teacher walked around and they had the paddle in the hands and I wasn't there. You'd have to ask some other people in the sanctuary today. <clears throat> but how many have ever had that teacher that just poured into you that you were somehow able to relate to. I know who mine was, mine was my math teacher. His name was Mr. Misquick. He was a bowling ball of a man. He was about this tall and about that wide. And, and, and I couldn't understand math for the life of me all through ninth grade. I struggled with it, I fought with it. But then in 10th grade, I got into his class. And then I made sure I was in his class in 10th, 11th, and 12th so that I understood 
my math through the rest of my high school years. And, 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 and that teacher not only taught me math, he was a wrestling coach, he began to just, there was just something about him that drew me to him. I was excited to go to his class. I was excited to, even if it was calculus or pre-calculus or, or algebra, I was excited to go to his class, even though I didn't like math all that much, but because of the teacher. See, that's, if we can fall in love with the law, it's the teacher that says, I want to keep coming back because there's something about it. Even though I don't necessarily enjoy it, I don't like all the thou shalt nots and all the thou shalts, and, and I don't like all of those things, but something keeps drawing me. That's what the law is supposed to do. So the first time the Lord wrote the law and we've been unsuccessful in living up to it since then without his help. The second time in history that, that God begins to write in a personal manner is found in the book of Daniel. And I believe that this is God writing in Daniel chapter 5. And I'll share this with you. I can read the whole chapter. This is the chapter about Belshazzar. And he's the king of, and he's having a great feast. And, and while he's doing all of that, he, he begins to invite the things uh, of, he goes and he has somebody grab all the articles of the, the temple and he brings them in and he's making a mockery of the things of God. And the Bible says in verse 5, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And God's countenance, or the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosened. In other words, he wet his pants. And his knees smote one against the other. And then over in verse 24, this is the writing. And this is what the hand wrote, the finger wrote on the wall. It said, meaning me, temple, you Farson, the interpretation is, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. You might be able to say that King Belshazzar was having the party of parties until he saw a finger writing on the wall. And then the party was over. And his, fail turned, his face turned pale and he was frightened. His knees began to knock. He couldn't control his bladder. He became terrified. And, and the more he saw what was being written, he had mocked God and broken one of his laws. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then he brought in the gold goblets from the temple of Jerusalem and said, fill them up. And as they drunk themselves into a stupor, they, made, they, they, they praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and wood and iron and made fun of the, the, the God of gods, if you will. And so you don't want to mess with God. In fact, let me put it to you the way Hebrews said it, so it's not coming from me. The writer of Hebrews said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can mock gods of gold and silver and stone and iron because they're dead already. But God is alive and well. Now listen, the second writing of God in this message today, he writes judgment. He writes law. Belshazzar broke the law. 
So God begins to write judgment. He writes down, your days are numbered. You've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is now over. Romans 6 says this, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9, 27 says it is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. You see, God wrote the law and God wrote judgment. Can I just tell you that there has been a move over the last several decades even to soften God, to make God just a candy stick for what we want to have happen. Listen, God is still the creator that spoke everything into existence. He's still the all-powerful one. He is still the almighty one. And so he writes judgment against Belshazzar. But it's a warning to you and I that there is coming a day when judgment will be handed out. And you and I have a, a responsibility to live up to the law that he already designed to make us holy and to make us right in his eyes. Because we can't do it on our own, we've got to get to him so that the judgment doesn't come. Can I just tell you, every one of your wrongs has been judged already? It's been judged. Because we like to think, listen, let me put it to you this way. Judgment is not... The consequence. Judgment is not the punishment. Judgment is the declaration that you've done right or wrong. And Belshazzar here, his judgment was that he was wrong. The repercussions of that judgment was his kingdom was going to be divided. And that he was, his days were going to be numbered. In fact, his days were so numbered that it didn't even last more than one day. And, and he passed from this world into the next. Can I just tell you that in the softening of who God is, that theologians and, and, and society has tried to soften the, the repercussions of the judgments of our sins? See, here's the thing. You have one of two judgments that, that come upon you. You're either right or you're wrong. You are either saved or you are a sinner. Why? Because you can't do it on your own. And so it has to be declared over you. Let me use the word that the King James uses. The word justification or justified. When you come into contact with Jesus, the Bible says he is the one that is able to justify you. What does that mean? Does that mean it makes you all right? No, it means he stands up at the middle of the judgment and says, when you are judged wrong because of who I am in that person's life, I can justify and put the right kind of judgment on you. So when you come to Jesus, it's the reason why you can't fulfill the law on your own. You need him. But listen, here's the thing. And this is the most powerful thing, is that when Jesus is standing between your, your punishment for your judgment and you being right in the eyes of God, your punishment is still being carried out. It's just that you're not receiving it. He received it at Calvary. When he hung on the tree, every time you have been judged wrong, if you are hand in hand with him, 
that judgment or the penalty of that judgment has been placed on the cross of Calvary and the blood has overshadowed it. Because the first thing he wrote was the law to identify when we've messed up. The second thing he wrote was the judgment that, yeah, you're going to mess up. But the third time he wrote, he wrote in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 1 and through 11, he begins to write again. It's the third time in scripture and in history that we see the actual writing of God in the, in the world, a handwritten note. And the Bible says that Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and he taught them and the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto, a, unto him a woman taken in adultery and when they had set her in the midst they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such, remember the law? Moses commanded in the law but that law was written by the hand of God that such should be stoned. What do you say? And they said this, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the oldest and even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, nobody really knows what Jesus wrote on the ground that day. Doesn't know. Jesus, had, nobody has any idea but the Lord and the people that were standing there that day what Jesus wrote. But I can tell you what he wrote onto the heart of a hurting woman that had been taken in the very act of adultery and was obviously ashamed by her sin through his humanity, Jesus, the same God that wrote the law that defines sin, the same God that wrote judgment for sin, was also this time writing a new word. That word was grace. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This woman had broken what God had written by his own finger in Exodus and was found in need of something because the judgment was upon her and the law said that she should have died and that she should have been stoned. But Jesus, the, uh, the, the manifestation of God in the flesh, according to John chapter 1, kneels down. And I don't know if he began to draw pictures or football plays. I don't know what he, what he drew that day. It doesn't matter what he drew on the ground. But he began to write. And as he began to write, he said one little statement. He that hath no sin, let him cast the first stone. And the scribes and the Pharisees 
as haughty as they were, they understood that they were not perfect individuals and they began to lay down the judgment or the penalty of the judgment and Jesus looked at the woman and said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Listen, can I just tell you that when you are standing at the foot of Jesus, when he wrote that third time, he ushered in a season or an era or a generation of grace that allows you and I to overcome us breaking the law and receiving the judgment. And it was just a few short weeks later that Jesus would hang on a tree and pay the ultimate price for the breaking of the law that we do from the beginning of time to the end of time. And the judgment for that breaking was all upon him because his grace was ushered in. John chapter 1 says, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see, we deserve because we'll never attain the high standard of God. It's the reason why Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the law, I came to fulfill the law. Listen, I love the law. I love the Old Testament. I love figuring out what makes God holy because it lets me know a little bit about God. But I'm thankful that I live on this side of judgment. I'm thankful because I was like Belshazzar. And though I didn't see a physical hand reach out of the sky and write on my wall, I knew enough to know I've broken too many of the laws of God. And I could never dwell in his presence. And I could never sit with this group of people and feel the presence of God as it ushers itself into this congregation. I could never do it. Because the judgment was that I was wrong. But Jesus says, I understand the law, since I wrote it. I understand judgment, since I created it. But I also have created grace. What's grace? Unmerited favor. For by unmerited favor, through faith you are saved. When Jesus said grace, spoke grace into this lady's life after he had written on the ground. I just, I, 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 like I said, nobody knows what he wrote, but I just have to believe that it had to be something that was simple yet profound. I, I don't know, he might have even wrote down this. You said, Moses said, but I am that I am was the one that wrote that. You're not talking about Moses' law. That's my law. And I know that she'll never measure up to that law. So I'm going to create a way not to bypass the judgment of that law, but to bypass your penalty for that law. And I'm going to shed my blood on the cross. It has been said, there was a story one time that Martin Luther went to sleep troubled about his sin. 
And in a dream, he saw an angel standing by like a blackboard or something. And at the top of it was Luther's name. And the angel began listing all of Luther's sins. And it filled the board that he was dreaming about. It said that Luther shuddered in despair, feeling that his sins were so many that he could never be forgiven. But, given. but suddenly in his dream, he saw a pierced hand writing above the list of these words. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And as Luther gazed in amazement, the blood flowed from the wounded hand and washed the entire record clean. I don't know what you have been facing this week. I don't know if the law that God wrote has been so overwhelming or the judgment. Listen, if the law has been overwhelming and you just don't think that you're good enough, that you can't make it, that you can't measure up, you're right. You can't. So stop trying to do it on your own and get to Jesus. Because when you try to do it on your own, you will be judged for all of your actions. But Jesus is kneeling before you in the dirt, right in front of you even now. And whatever he's writing on the ground of your heart, all I know is this, grace is still available. And you can be perfected in him and made righteous in him when Jesus begins to write the rest of the story of your life. Because he writes it in the blood of Calvary and he washes the sin-stained heart clean. But here's what we do. Here's what we do. And I'm coming to a close. This is probably not a new story or a new message to most of you that have been around Your mess-ups and your failures and my mess-ups and my failures in life. God expected them. The messes that we've created, God expected them. That's why he wrote the law. So that when you mess up, you know you've messed up. Because if you didn't know you messed up, you'd never try to get out of a mess up. But because he wrote the law, he lets you know you've done messed up. And not only that, he wrote judgment so that you understand that your mess ups are condemning. There is a punishment to your mess ups. But he didn't leave us hanging there. He said, you're going to mess up. You're going to have to pay the price for your mess up, but that price is going to be taken by me. And I'm going to walk to a hill called Golgotha. And every sin and mess up that you've made is now getting ready to be covered in the blood so that you can be pure and righteous. But what we end up doing is we go back fishing for our mess ups. And we begin, God, I just, I, God, I know it's been 10 years, but man, I really messed up 10 years ago. Can I just tell you that's the voice of the enemy trying to bring guilt to you? Amen. 
Uh, let me make two points of that, and then I, I promise I'm done. Number one, if you have honestly repented to God for your sin, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive it. And the Bible says when he forgives something, he casts it into a into the expanse that cannot be touched. As far as the east is from the west, you start going east, you're never reaching west. So that he remembers it no more. So that he remembers it no more. So that he remembers it no more. So when you go back to try to repent of that sin again, if he really had an honest conversation with you, you'd, you'd hear him say this. What are you talking about? <laughs> I have no clue what you're talking about. It's already been taken. And if you did that, if you did that, which you remember because the enemy's been throwing it over and over and over in your head. If you remember it, that's one thing. But I don't remember that ever happening. It's already been forgotten if you actually did it. So stop repenting for it and live in the freedom of knowing that when Jesus forgives you, he forgets about it. Can I just be honest with you? Most of us deal with sins that he doesn't know about. Because he's already forgiven it. And he's already forgotten it. And we're still dealing with it. We're dealing with something that is not real because it's already been washed. It's already been cleansed. It's already been forgotten. So stop fishing where God has already cleansed. Corey Tendum said this, when I bring my sins to the Lord Jesus, he casts them into the depths of the sea, forgiven and forgotten, and he puts a sign up, no fishing allowed. Because when you start taking that old junk, all you're doing is casting a rod and a reel in front of a dead, scaled fish. It's done. Can I just tell you, what I think that lady must have felt when she got up off the ground and looked at Jesus and he said, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Can I tell you in that moment of time, she was as saintly as Mother Teresa because it was cleansed. I invite you to stand. Some of you have struggled over and over and over with your past, over and over and over with your sins and your mistakes. God sent me today to tell you he wrote the third time so that it would cancel out the first two or actually fulfill, not cancel, but to fulfill the first two. And it would be fulfilled in him, not in you. You get the overflow. You get the repercussions of the fulfillment of Christ in the law. Jesus has already paid the price and dealt with the punishment. You see, here's what I believe God is wanting. God is wanting his people to soar like the eagles. But we're too attached to the ground. Yeah. 
to her messes. Well, Pastor, is it really that easy just to overcome? In the eyes of God, it's already been overcome. I have overcome the world. Not I will. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So if you're hand in hand with him, that makes you what the Bible calls more than overcomers. You have the opportunity to soar into the heights with the Lord and not get tied down with the law and judgment because his grace is sufficient. It's the reason why the writer said, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound because sin is attached to law and to judgment, but grace fulfills law and judgment and makes everything pure and holy. The three fingers of God, law, judgment, grace. Would you bow your heads in the presence of the Lord? I believe that God is speaking to somebody right now. You have been troubled. You have not identified that it's your flesh or the enemy that has been troubling you about your past thoughts, your past actions, your past words, the things that violate the law of God and the standard that God has set up. And today, he wants to whisper into your spirit to say that you were never meant to measure up. So stop trying to measure up on your own. He's trying to tell you, I wrote that law so long ago, not to deliver condemnation and judgment to you, but to deliver to you a clear boundary, a clear structure that will help you realize that it's only through him that you will make it. He wrote it to draw on your heartstrings. He wrote it to say, I've got so much for you. He wrote it to say, I want to be in your life like never before. I want to operate in your spirit like never before. But you're all tied up because of something that has already been taken care of. God, I'm asking you to speak to that spirit right now, that heart right now, that life right now. I am asking for the spirit of encouragement to well up on the inside of them. Let them feel the strength of the edification of your glory. In the name of Jesus. Lord, if there is somebody here that has unrepentant sin, Lord, they fall under the umbrella of a broken law and are in need of judgment and punishment. I'm asking you in this moment, as I begin to pray a prayer of repentance, that they would join me in that, that you would then be able to take grace and apply it to their situation and their situation and their needs. And Lord, I ask you to create in me a clean heart. 
to renew a right spirit within me. If there be any unclean thing, Lord, wash me and cleanse me with the washing of water by your word. Search my heart, O oh God, and know my ways. Lord, go into every corner. Go into every room of my life, O oh God, and cleanse me with your sweet spirit with the blood that that covers all sin that washes away our sin lord let it be so even now and from this day forward from this moment forward help us to walk from this place with a clean uh chalkboard lord with a clean plate everything is absolutely cleansed and righteous and we stand in good standing with you in jesus name in jesus name in jesus name